This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be back. I am Trevor, and I am here with my good friend, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing? I'm happy to be here, Trevor. It's a nice uh, Saturday morning. Got my little cup of coffee and ready to talk about three films that I've really uh, enjoyed for many years. And, of course, it's just always great to get back, uh, back with you on Inside the Box and keep this thing going. So I'm happy to be uh, here. I agree. I'm, I'm excited, and I guess... Maybe we'll let's spill the beans right now at the very beginning because I'll forget <laughs> okay. later on. We're we're pretty flexible on our schedule here as far as how frequently we do these. We're trying mm-hmm. for maybe once a quarter or thereabouts, but we do have a special Christmas episode coming. So while this will come out, you know, sometime in November, uh, we will be recording something for for the Christmas uh, spirit holidays as well. So that's right. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. The quick turnaround uh, there. Exactly. Yep. Then we'll take next year off and <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> no, this is too much fun. I, I, it, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of good prep work, um, but in a good way. And the flexibility makes it never feel like a chore. And it's always so nice to jump up in the morning and, and see you again and mm-hmm. get talking. And this, this particular uh, episode, we're talking about a fairly recent release, one from earlier this year, if 2021, and maybe still one of my favorite releases of the year, yeah. uh, an important release. This is the three films uh, by uh, Luis Buñuel uh, set that contains his last three films, the, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, The Phantom of Liberty, and That Obscure Object of Desire. And we were talking about this beforehand, but listeners, we're pretty sure we've got these films all figured out um, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You can just uh, scratch your Wikipedia links. Here is where you're going to have it all explained. (laughs) Lockdown, airtight theories impervious to all challengers oh wait i got all my theories from wikipedia i don't know if they should (laughs) no just 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 Uh, joking just joking uh but these are three uh wonderfully bizarre absurd and challenging films to the point where you we i think we've we've got to kind of acknowledge i don't always think buñuel knew why he did things why he made the choices he did it's like David Lynch in a way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things just feel right and it, it strikes a, a truth chord, even if you don't entirely understand it or if you don't entirely have the ability to articulate it. And I certainly feel that way with, with these three final films of Luis Buñuel. Yeah, yeah. He's playing uh, with intuition, with dreams, hunches, uh, images, impressions, memories, um, which, you know, the, the, the person remembering might even re- realize they're not reliable, but that's how mm-hmm. you remember it anyways. And he's recognizing that all of those ambiguous states of mind are part of life, you know. Um, yes, there is the rational, there is the factual, there is some degree of certainty about, you know, many things that we you know, do on a day-to-day basis, but there is that whole kind of more ephemeral realm where uh, it is, it, it's it's how you see it, it's how you feel it, it's, uh, you know, what you understood based on incomplete information, 
and that we live much of our lives according to those whims uh, and those impulses. And uh, he's doing what he can to cap- capture some of that mystery on film. And I think he does a, uh, and did over the course of a very long and influential career. Um, you know, he did a fantastic job and, and left this incredible legacy of films. And uh, this is kind of his final act, so to speak. Yeah, and I, I want to start this with maybe a bit of a mea culpa, which I'll see if you want to join me in it or not, but you were there with me mm-hmm. at the scene of the crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when this set was announced, you and I were on an episode of Criterion Now with Aaron, and Aaron asked, oh, do you, know, do you guys like these films? And I think I didn't go back and re-listen to it right now, uh, but I think you and I both said, oh, sure, you know, this is this is good. I mean, we both prefer other Buñuel. I mean, you know, <laughs> you get back into the 1960s and That's and right. maybe we came off as a little bit snobbish or dismissive of these films. And we were called out on it in a later episode of Criterion Now by I think it was Jonathan James. And um, I want to apologize to Jonathan for requiring him to do that. I think he came out with that episode after the set had been released and I had rewatched the films and forgotten all about our conversation. <laughs> and I'm like really high on these films and like, man, mm-hmm. this is so nice to revisit these boy. These may just be his best works ever. And then, and then I listened to that episode and I think, yes. Oh dang, did we really say that? And we did. I went back and, and uh, heard a that little, we, we did a little condescending pat on the head. Oh yes. <laughs> nice Louise, you know, uh, ending your career with these kind of sketch comedy anthologies. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's clearly been watching Monty Python and (laughs) trying to keep up with the kids. Right, right, right. It it occurs to me, though, I I maybe have to put Buñuel in that category of whatever I watched most recently is my favorite film by him. Because I (laughs) adored each one of these. And and, yeah, I bet if I went back and watched, you know, Viridiana or... Or, um, you know, The Exterminating Angel or even Simon of the Desert, I think they would do the same thing to me. And I'd be like, no, this mm-hmm. is really where he was at his peak. But, but boy, I, I, I just love these. You know, Belle de Jour or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Tristana even. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just so many great ones. And that's just from his, the later part of his career. If we go back to the, you know, the beginning or the 50s, I mean, we'll get into it here in a little bit more. But, yeah, I think that um, I, want to, I wanted to start with that bit of a confession and realization on my part, I had that epiphany that it's probably just whatever I'm watching by him will really work on me. Yeah, I mean, I think these are films that can be kind of easily trivialized because they, you know, they do kind of pass like a dream. You know, you you watch them and it's it's not like there's like tremendous stakes. You know, it's not like, a, you know, kind of some kind of... Um, Oh, I don't know. So, so, you know, the Russian cinema of the '60s, where you just hmm. you're facing these intense existential crises, or Bergman, or something like that, where you know, once you get into the story, you're gripped by the the inherent drama, the conflict, the even if it's a, a small chamber piece, you know, just a, a cast of a few actors. What what the characters are going through is of such depth and magnitude that it's kind of compelling. These these films you know, you're not really investing in characters. You're not really getting caught up in the, and in the, um, you know, the crises that, that the, the individuals are going through. And yet the themes that are being touched on are, are huge. And, and, Mm -hmm. and, and, but if there's a a wry humor and then there's kind of a sort of a sardonic, uh, you know, waving of the hand of, of just kind of how, you know, 
how these just moment, how these moments just pass in our lives, and and all of these concerns, all these manners, all these customs, all this uptightness, is is kind of you know regarded as you know important to certain people for certain reasons, but ultimately, uh, I won't say meaningless, but but certainly not as as invested with with all of the the gravity and and weight that that our emotions often tell us that is and so he's he's kind of putting the the stresses and strains of life in this kind of a frame of this context which allows us to look at it through kind of a a humorous lens uh and yet these are not overt comedies either i mean if you know we've mentioned Mm -hmm. monty python and if, if you're thinking that these are trying to do what monty python is doing uh yeah you can you can draw some similarities but i think monty python is overtly trying to be funny and I'm not sure you can say that that's exactly what Funuel is up to. I mean, there are laughs, especially once you've sort of, you know, assimilated to what he's doing here. Some of it's hilarious, but that's not that's not the end goal. It's not just to make them chuckle in their seats. Um, I, I, at least I, I don't I don't believe that that's his mm-hmm. his objective here. You know, the laughter is there, but it's it's more incidental to what I think the films are really trying to accomplish. Yeah, they're definitely farcical. And they do cause you to have laughter at the characters and how stupid they're being. And then you kind of start to realize, oh, they're familiar. They, they, yeah. I, I've, I yeah, recognize yeah. that. And the things he's taken cuts at are pretty serious things. And each one of these films also has a tinge of terrorism. Oh, yeah. Um, there's, in in there's them. Death and morbidity and and uh you know conflict and and even anguish sadness i mean you know there's there's some yeah. heavy stuff that goes down here if you think about it but even that is kind of done with a touch of of, of light humor or sort of an ironic distance so yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and and i'm i'm betting that part of my impression of these films this is where i started my journey with buñuel back in the day these so here films, I am, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> films in this period, and mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I, I think I saw the Milky Way at about the same time, and that's where I started because I don't, I don't, I actually don't have any idea why. It wasn't until several years after I'd seen these that I watched, you know, Viridiana and The Exterminating Angel, and fell in love with the films and with his work. And I wouldn't be surprised if those also helped me understand these films a little bit better and i'm sure my you know just general maturation and and film watching and you know life experience also helped me understand and appreciate what he's doing with these late works uh better than than before but i'll bet that that's part of where my dismissiveness came from is that i started here and and i might still not recommend that for just some you know young buck me (laughs) coming out you know to these films in say college or whatever um, I might would still have told myself if I went back in time to do something different, but but I'm not sure. I think his films require a little bit of um, stepping back and readjusting both what we expect from film and what we expect from narrative, and maybe even our our comfort with somebody um, taking shots at social institutions, you know, like religion and government and just you know, the, the bourgeoisie and then the class system that we even have here in America and all, all of these things kind of got to 
to maybe have a little bit of life experience to see what he's doing and, and that he's he's spot on with many of his criticisms and and you may you may see some of them hit people that you care about or even yourself and you got to be able to to step back and say okay that's valid criticism <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. so so i i but i'm definitely on on board with these and but I, I have been curious about your own. We, we've been yeah. doing this for so long, but I've never talked to you, I think, at all, other than in that one maybe conversation where we both right. said, ah, oh, pish posh. Doesn't The Ascent coming out as well? Let's talk yeah. about that one instead of these three <laughs> films by Buñuel um, back yeah. in January. Uh, we uh, have, Otherwise, I don't think ever really talked about Buñuel. No, so, but I mean, really, you said, you know, this is where you started. And I mean, for me, Buñuel is where I started as kind of a young, uh, like a teenager or young adult, mm-hmm. um, kind of getting into, you know, artistic style cinema. I mean, I've told the story about when I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey as like a seven-year-old kid, six or seven, eight, maybe whatever it was. But um you know, so that was kind of a pretty game-changing, life-changing experience for me as a child encountering a movie that I really didn't understand, but just enthralled me. But mm-hmm. other than maybe Woody Allen, uh, right around the same time in the late 70s, I think Bunuel might have been the first director that I was really conscious of. Like, I want to see as many of his movies as I could. And that actually goes back to his first film, Unchian Andalou and, mm-hmm. and Lage d'Or. Um, I had, I was just kind of becoming interested in surrealism in my like late teens, uh, heard about it. And I just loved the confrontational uh, weirdness of it. And, and the uh, uh, sort of, con- you know, reminding society of how, how absurd so many of our conventions and, and manners and customs were. And as I, and, and, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I saw that when it first came out. So I was in my you know early teens at that point. And that, and that kind of random, spontaneous, bizarro humor really connected with me as I'm sure it's connected with many young people around that age. And so Bunuel was kind of this discovery for me. Um, and, and actually, um, uh, the punk rock band I was in, uh, uh, Tim, our singer, he, he was a kind of a more educated Bunuel aficionado. So he recommended, uh, those films to me and, and we went and saw Los Olvidados in the theater. And, um, I remember, I think seeing, um, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie at kind of a a repertory theater. Um, so, you know, I remember that obscure object of desire being released and in circulation, you know, in my late teens as well. So, uh, yeah, watching Bunuel over the years um, and kind of trying to get on his wavelength has been kind of a, a long, a lifelong acquaintance uh, uh, for me. But I think because I associated these films, these last three films, as kind of, like I said, absurdist sketch comedy, um, that that did lead me to, to sort of think of them almost as like, you know, the stuff I was into when I was a kid. And and um, as I got further into Bunuel's catalog later on and saw films like Viridiana, Exterminating Angel, uh, Simon of the Desert, something about the kind of uh, the grittier aspects of those films, uh, the, the, the more... Uh, they're more raw, they're less refined than what you see in these later films. And, and I sort of thought that's that's the kind of edgy Bunuel that I that I kind of prefer and that this was where 
Bunuel, you know, these last three films where he quote unquote went commercial or something like that. I mean, he won an Academy Award <laughs> for Discreet Charm and he was, you know, kind of, it, to me, that's probably, it maybe even felt like one of those Lifetime Achievement Awards. The Academy realized, well, Bunuel's getting up there in years. He played this really major influence in cinema, you know, because early collaborations with Dali and all of that. So let's, let's go ahead and give him an award. Um, but yeah, really digging into these films because I, you know, I've had the box set since it came out, and I'd watched the old Criterion DVDs a few times. But uh, watching them all together and getting into this box set with the the nice, you know, Blu-ray mm-hmm. presentation, all of that, really, you know, made another you know, bold impact on me as I realized, you know, like you said, with with that addition of life experience. And just recognizing that these are, this is kind of a culmination of everything Bunuel had been working toward up until this point. Um, yeah, I think I have a, an appreciation now that transcends my, my earlier admiration and enjoyment of his work because I see it's not just, you know, somebody who's playing with ideas and saying, hey, look what I can do and, and let's reveal to my audience those repressed kind of inner um, thoughts and feelings that were usually much too polite to express out loud, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel like, yeah, he's, he is kind of functioning at a very high level here. Um, even though the surface polish and the elegance and the, uh, the preoccupation with the bourgeoisie, um, in, in really all, all three of the films, but especially in, in the first two, uh, you know, because it, he is kind of taking shots at the upper middle class, the refined, the well-to-do, um, that has that can leave the impression that these are films to be taken less seriously because he's he's going after people who are living comfortable lives rather than you know the poor and the downtrodden, the outcasts, you know, the Los Olvidados or or um, uh, Verdiana, uh, you know, some of those films we've already alluded to. So. Uh, it's it's kind of like Ozu, you know, when he started, Ozu was talking about the working class and 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 kind of the the people um, living in poverty and and just barely getting by. And as he gets older, he's now focusing on more affluent families. And th- there's a similar arc in terms of mm. the subject matter. Uh, you know, Bunuel was a starving artist for a while, you know, and and mm-hmm. then he became a little more comfortable. He was embraced by the, uh, you know, the new wave and the European art house community. I mean, he was kind of almost rescued, you could say, you know, coming back from Mexico, went to Spain, made Viridiana, got in trouble with the Spanish authorities. Uh, These last three films in particular show him being embraced by, you know, by the French film culture and, and celebrated. And it's very fortuitous that he was able to bring his career to such a a satisfying conclusion. I, I think at one point he thought Tristana might have been his last movie, mm-hmm. um, but he was kind of, you know, recruited almost to make these films <laughs> and uh, we're all the better off because he was. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, every one of these seemed like he didn't really want to make it. Like the last film was going to be his final film, but he had some really good collaborators who just mm-hmm. must have known how to push his buttons in the right way in his producer, Serge Silberman, mm-hmm. and in his fellow screenwriter, the uh, uh, just amazing Jean-Claude Carrière. Mm-hmm. And those two seemed to recognize there is a wealth of stuff here. We've got important work to do, 
Yeah. Let's Buñuel, let's get going and they just seem to be able to inspire him each time to take on this next project even though and especially when you get to the end with um with that obscure object of desire even at the beginning of it he's saying this is too hard I am too old why mm-hmm. am I here and <laughs> yeah. then they made some changes which we'll get into that are <laughs> bizarre changes yep. and it seemed to have injected the life into him mm-hmm. to keep it going and of course that's his final film and um we get that really interesting uh, tribute almost to Buñuel from his friends and some of those actors in that film because he died right you mm-hmm. know right then and um and in in that in that final uh or blu-ray disc there's a, a really nice tribute but I'm glad that he did keep on going because I do I like Tristana and I like the book it's based on a Benito mm-hmm. Perez mm-hmm. novel and I really like Belle du Jour. And he worked with both on both of those with um, with the same people. But these just seemed to, for me, and now I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to have to go rewatch those and realize those are my favorite <laughs> Buñuel films. But but I think he hits a new a new peak here mm-hmm. and goes out with a major flourish uh, with these 70s films. Um, and I recognize, too, the, the, maybe some of your, how much do you think your own, your own process for how you've been uh, blogging and then podcasting about the collection, going through things in chronological order, you've mm-hmm. hit up to this point. I think you, I think your next film will be the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie from 1972, right? So you've done well, Tristana and mm-hmm. the Milky Way and work. You know, I, I've yeah, probably yeah, even I'm... read all your pieces on Veridiana and Simon of the Desert, and you know, yeah. going back. Yeah, I think. I, well, I'm not sure. Belle du Jour might be a film that was released on disc um, after I had already passed that point mm. in the timeline. So I might, I'm not sure I actually ever reviewed that one. But yeah, other than that, I, I think I've covered all of the Benoel films. And, and in my podcast, uh, Criterion Reflections podcast, I did do a discussion with Jason Beamish about um, the Milky Way. And I did an episode on Tristana uh, with my online friend Lauren LaGiudice. Uh, so I did cover those two. Um, Tristana, of course, is not a Criterion title proper, but it was on the channel. It's it's on a Cohen Blu-ray, mm-hmm. which I own, and a fantastic film with Catherine Deneuve, kind of a, you know, picking up, you know, where he left off in some ways with Belle de Jour. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely tracked Bunuel's career, uh, and I've, I have seen several, not all of his Mexican films, but, a, you know, quite a few of them. Um, and still hoping one day that Criterion, <laughs> and maybe they're working on it now, is that that uh, uh, legendary Mexican Bunuel uh, box set from the 1950s. So that would be a, a real coup and, and a dream come true if I was to see that. But even if they could just get a handful of those titles, uh, they are you know some great films that really are worthy of the Criterion treatment. But I, I do envision something like sort of the Dietrich von Sternberg box would be a, a nice analogy uh, you know, six or seven films would be fantastic because I think there's six or seven at least, if not more, from that period that are worthy of of uh, the full Criterion treatment. Yeah. Oh, you're getting me wistful. I just want <laughs> yeah, exactly. to dream about that that box. But we've got mm-hmm. we've got work to do in this box. Exactly. Let's uh, let's get to it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, let's see. So we've kind of done our little introductions. I think we've skirted around where we get to with these films. And um, let's let's see where it takes us as we just dig into mm-hmm. his uh, his Academy Award winning 
the discreet yes. charm of the bourgeoisie from 1972. Uh, in many ways, this film is almost like a, a recapitulation of things going on in the exterminating angel mm-hmm. where you get a bunch of wealthy people together at a dinner party and lo and behold, they cannot leave and mm-hmm. they're stuck in this, uh, you know, they can't walk through the door that they entered. It's not because the door is locked. It's, in some cases, it's not even because the door is there. They simply cannot leave. In this film, there's a group, it's a smaller group of, of a few couples cannot sit down for dinner. Their their dinner plans continually get interrupted as they go from place to place trying to sit down. And sometimes they'll, they will get there and be on a stage and start to realize that they're part of a production and can't remember their lines. And other times they get interrupted by terrorists and other mm-hmm. times they... They get interrupted because the host is dead and having a funeral in the next room, a viewing or something like that. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just crazy, but it's, there's so much going on here that I'm excited to get into. With sure. You, yeah. Somebody tallied it up. I, I don't know if it's in the, in the, uh, the booklet that comes in the box set or something I read online, but I think there were five meals or at least the beginnings of meals and four dreams. So there is, seems like there's kind of a sequence or a structure going on here, but it's, it's, it's not real noticeable. There's certainly no chapter headings, meal number one, you know, dream number one, you know, but, but, (laughs) but you're right. And so, and it begins, it's just very innocuous. You know, you see a a bunch of well-dressed, these are not, you know, high society, super sophisticates, but they're people who are living a comfortable life. One of the characters is a, is a diplomat from the fictional South American nation of Miranda, (laughs) uh, the Fernando Rey character. And Fernando Rey is, you know, I think pretty well established as, as Bunuel's stand in, or at least, you know, he's a, Mm -hmm. a character who sort of, uh, is is prominent in, in certainly in in all of these films and and in some of the other ones as well with Tristana etc. So, uh, but but there's a you know a, two couples and then uh, Delphine Seyrig has a younger sister uh, who is is accompanying them as well. So you've basically I guess the younger sister and the diplomat they're not really a couple but they would be paired with each other and then two mm-hmm. married couples that kind of make up our, our main cast. And uh, yeah, so it begins with them just dropping in uh, the, the, the ambassador, the, the younger sister and the married couple dropping in on, on their friend um, who's not expecting them until the next evening. And so that's, you know, <laughs> you, you've already got miscommunication. Uh, the one party says, well, I can swear it was for tomorrow night. I would have, I would never have agreed to meet tomorrow night because I'm, I've already got another thing scheduled. So you've already got this little disruption, but it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Um, but then from there they said, well, let's go out to dinner at a restaurant. And and that's where you get into this kind of, uh, displacement. They, they find a restaurant, but the door is, it seems to be locked. Uh, it's not only until after they've kind of knocked on it a little bit, then somebody opens up. There's nobody else in the restaurant. The The pricing is cheap. It's not the, the, the fine dining experience that the, that they were led to believe by the person who'd been there before and says, Oh yeah, this is, this is a good place to go. And then you find that there, well, there's a corpse in the back room, you know? So <laughs> it, you, you're, you're already getting into some of those themes, you know, obviously, you know, Bunuel, his, his films often uh, have that shadow of death hanging over them. There's, there's something, somebody who's died, there's sometimes hints of, you know, uh, 
even necrophilia or just kind of this you know mm-hmm. bizarre um, focus it's it's impolite to, to stare too long at a dead body obviously if there's a dead body it just changes the dynamics of the whole situation so they end up f- sort of fleeing the restaurant and agreeing to meet the next day <laughs> but then you've, you've got the couple that's hosting um, they're kind of getting all enthralled with each other uh, romantically <laughs> and want to have some shenanigans while their guests are waiting in the other room, even to the point where they're sneaking out the window so that they can have their tryst uh, and not be detected. I mean, it's like, what what is going on here? So as you describe the the narrative flow or the sequence, uh, you know, you, you ask, what is the purpose of it all? But I feel mm-hmm. it's like we're just, we're you know, we're being drawn into you know these situations and what would we do in that in that moment and and why are these people you know conducting themselves this way i don't know it just just has this kind of droll and unsettling effect as you see the characters encountering one frustration after another uh, and doing it all through the the prism of of respectability you know that that, that all of their interactions are all kind of refined and polite and and um sort of surface level they're they're all doing sort of the expected bourgeois thing um except it just sort of ends up backfiring on them uh, as as some some random element comes in to try and kind of throw all the manners off balance that prism of respectability is a perfect way to put something that I've been trying to wrap my fingers around a little mm-hmm. bit because Buñuel is, is having things that we've all been through. How many times have we gone to a restaurant and it just doesn't work out and you kind of get annoyed. And, and when you watch this film, you're like, Oh my gosh, I am an awful person <laughs> for that because there's that prism of respectability, but it's about the assumptions underlying it. It's about their sense of entitlement as they're being respectfully um, impolite mm-hmm. to say the 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 restaurant where the owner has died, because they're like, well, how dare he die? Yeah, um, when we're when we're coming, you know, of course, that's like we can still make you a nice meal. You know, we mm-hmm. have a seat, please. We will serve you. We just, you know, they just passed away this afternoon. You know, well, so. I don't want to eat in a place <laughs> where someone where the owner has just died. You know, and, right, right, and and I'm. It's it's something. It's a sentiment that that is understandable. I mean, you don't want to be at a place where there's a, a funeral and and mm-hmm. where there's obviously stuff going on. But that's not their concern. Their concern is that they should have had been able to have a dinner without that disruption. You know. Yes. Yes. And it just there, there's there's a definite sense of entitlement, a definite sense of of uh, just complete. Um, you know, what's the opposite of compassion uh, for the people? Yeah, disregard or contempt. Yeah. 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 Uh, for for the people who are serving them. And they also often pretend that the problems of the world aren't really affecting them. They are above mm-hmm. it all. Mm-hmm. And so the various, uh, you know, images of terrorism come out. You've got the Fernando Rey character and his own um, corruption. But yes. that it's... We, we live in a world today where that stuff isn't seen as corruption. It is, if you look at it from a legal standpoint, but so many people can excuse those types of things mm-hmm. as simply prospering, as simply doing what needs to be done in order to sustain my living, and I'm entitled to it. 
I love well, that you say too yeah. that Ray is is um is a Buñuel stand-in. He always seems like that to me, and it does seem like Buñuel is able to take some shots now at the new class where he has found himself in his later life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll bet you a million bucks that he got annoyed a time or two at service, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, some, oh, of and, and had some of these very things to be able to then turn around and go, oh man, how disconnected are we, and how um, just self-regarding uh, with this layer of comfort and complacency mm-hmm. and directionlessness. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Fernando Ray character, not only is, does he have a sense of entitlement, he's got diplomatic immunity. <laughs> you know, he's, uh-huh. he is, he is in a certain sense, you know, completely untouchable. And he uses that advantage, that, that, um, that privilege that society's built-in structures have granted him to uh, engage in, you know, drug smuggling and, um, you know, shooting a rifle out into the street because of this woman that he suspects as being part of a, well, and, and, and he's, he's correct in his suspicion, this woman <laughs> who's part of a, a terrorist group uh, who was, you know, at, the, at a minimum out to harass and intimidate him and, and is potentially, you know, looking to, to take his life if they can get the opportunity to do that. So he is, you know, he is in a foreign country representing his own nation He's got the uh, privileges of uh, residence at the uh, embassy. He's got his, his his leather satchel that is, you know, uh, cannot be opened at customs. He can bring whatever he wants, and he uses it to smuggle cocaine. And uh, so, you know, he's taking full advantage of of this opportunity, and because it's all legal, he he can believe himself sincerely to be non corrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, he's respectable. He's he's doing what he's allowed to do, and he's and he's covered by the the blanket of legality and and respectability um, and authority. He is and authority, given a, right. he has a a, a high mm-hmm. position. He is yeah. he he can legitimately say it's because of this stuff that I am a leader of men yeah. and in society. Well, and that whole question of authority of, is is one of the true constants that runs through all of Benwell's work, all the way back to Shanandalu, mm-hmm. where uh, whether it's the priesthood or the government, um, or you know just the strong personality of sort of the, the alpha male um, who runs the show and, and sets the tone. Uh, Bunwell basically has had issues with those people <laughs> all throughout his life, but now he finds himself somewhat ironically uh, in a position of some authority himself. I mean, he's one of the grand old men of cinema at this point. You know, he's a, he's a hall of famer with a, with a great track record and a legendary career and um, admiration uh, of, of the highest degree by, by, you know, many of, his his peers, or more in particular, the younger people who've looked up to him, and they know his story, they recognize the influence and the impact of his work, his longevity, and so he now has this high status himself. And I feel like he mm-hmm. does a good yeah. job of keeping his own uh, class and his own preoccupations um, under the microscope. He he's not mm-hmm. just taking pot shots at those people. He's putting himself in the crosshairs as well. And I think he can that's... get funded, <laughs> yeah. And he uses that 
to tear down a little bit of the whole reason he can get funded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and even the audience that he's he's uh, catering to, I believe, you know, I mean, obviously there are many bourgeois people who have no interest or awareness of Bunuel, but the fact that this was a film that, um, you know, won awards, uh, was celebrated by sort of that middle class, middle brow, uh, the sophisticates who enjoy this type of thing, um, you know, they, his audience is what's on screen, you know, Bunuel at this mm-hmm. point, he, he, <laughs> you know, his, his, he was not probably drawing in, you know, the real gritty working class, you know, viewers that, that are more perhaps conventionally drawn to broad popular entertainment. You know, he's, he's making movies for people who at least consider themselves somewhat sophisticated and he's taking his shots at the sophisticated themselves. So, I, I mean, I feel like there is kind of a self-deprecation and I think that, that may be off-putting to some people who perhaps don't appreciate these films if, if they feel like they are somewhat being satirized themselves. But I, I mean, I feel like for the most part, these mm-hmm. movies are, are pretty well regarded by, most anyone who sits down to watch them unless you're going through them and you you're just there because you've heard the hype about the noel uh, because there are some people i I mean i did a little bit of reading and a little listen to a couple podcasts and there are people who uh, are out there who don't like these films uh, and maybe who who do uh, feel like they're failed comedy or that Monty Python did it better. And I think, well, maybe they just haven't dug in. Maybe this is just their first watch and they find it unsatisfying because it doesn't go somewhere. Sort of like what I was saying at the beginning, you know, there's, there's the stakes feel low because everything is in a sense disposable, but I don't know. It's kind of feels like maybe part of um, Buñuel's point though Right. I mean, these are people who have low stakes in life. What are they supposed yeah. to? They're just trying to maintain position and maybe get a little bit more authority, a little bit more money. But it, essentially part of the part of the visual gag of the movie is this long road. That they walk down with a <laughs> look of, you know, utter, utter, uh, utterly perplexed. And, and uh, but they keep walking down it anyway. I mean, the film yeah. has that, that interlude quite often. Uh, played throughout it and it does feel like well that's also the film mm-hmm. but it's because that's that's what they got you yeah know? they're not trying where to do anything going? important for anybody right where are we going and what's the point anyway i mean that mm-hmm. is kind of this this basic existential question that's being poured out there uh yes you've got your comfort you've got your status you've got uh, your taste you know it, it, it you know it's like when they're sitting down for the meal and and there's there's several occasions where they're going over the menu and, and what kind of beverage should we serve with this? And, and there's, there's even little mini rivalries and put downs, you know, like uh, the younger sister, she wants a dry martini. It's like, no, that is not right. You, you can only drink red wine with this, you know, or, mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot and, of mansplaining going on in this film. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and the food themselves, I mean, it's, it's all very sophisticated, you know, um, very fine-tuned you know it's it's not just your stock you know meat and potatoes type of meal it's 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 delicacies that are difficult to prepare and have to be done by the expert hand go ahead the perfectly roasted lamb (laughs) which which i gotta admit looks delicious oh yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, and that that is all really that is the, one of the culminating scenes of uh-huh. the entire film. That's what it all comes down to is you just want to get the. I mean, and after all of the frustration, all of the Finally. disruption, <laughs> and can never sit down to get your meal. Well, <laughs> doggone it, I don't care if there's guys with machine guns ready to take me out. I'm going to get that piece of lamb uh, <laughs> in, in my mouth, uh, if it, even if it kills me. Right. I have a question for you. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if how much ground there is here, so bear, hear me out and then go okay, ahead and tell sure. me if I'm if I'm way off. I can see a legitimate criticism, though I think it would be, it's not one that I agree with, but I can see a legitimate criticism that this film is a little bit too comfortable in and of itself. That it's showing these people as somewhat absurd, but also relatively harmless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worry that there might even be a bit of sympathy toward them and to their plight as as silly as it is um, that they are a little bit out of their depths and don't necessarily deserve utter disdain, but just a bit of um, mockery. And I can see that as being problematic for some viewers, especially after something like the exterminating angel where you have, I think higher stakes in that one. That one is a lot more forcefully, um, you know, cutting to the to the people that it is it is uh, satirizing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that one's a lot more personal uh, than this film, and I can right. see this almost being a softball to mm-hmm. the bourgeoisie uh, that it's that it's uh, decrying a little bit. I, I think I think there is that criticism, and I think it has been raised over the years. You know, I I, I can't help but think about. Um, the three-part series I did on the Jean-Luc Godard films from the late 60s, uh, you know, like basically from uh, La Chinoise forward, where he really went down that hmm. Marxist, you know, uh, ideologically radical uh, leftist revolutionary path, um, you know, the, the events of May 1968 in France in particular, where it felt, at least for a moment, like um, society was on the verge of another type of revolution where you know, the old order would be truly upended and, and disrupted and replaced by something much more egalitarian. Uh, you know, Godard and, and his peers at that time were influenced by the Chinese cultural revolution. Maoism was thought to be a viable alternative to you know, old guard Stalinist, uh, you know, Soviet style communism or the imperialism of the, of the West. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the May 1968, at least to certain people within that, you know, that upheaval really were trying to re, you know, reset society. Um, and so the anger towards the bourgeoisie and the sense that they are, you know, the cause of the problems, that they, the, their protection of privilege and class and, and power and, and money and, and the advantages of the, of the managerial class and the, the, you know, the aristocracy or the plutocracy that made them targets of scorn, or at least that's what they deserved. And, and you're right with, with this film and with, with really all three films in this set, um, you know, being made, you know, some years after, and even after Godard by 72 had sort of abandoned or was in the process of moving away from that hard left stance. Um, you know, there, there definitely could be a critique saying we should not let these bourgeoisie off so lightly. You know, they are screwing mm-hmm. over society. They're depriving the working class of their rights and of their fair share of the wealth. 
and uh, look at all the suffering, look at all the hardship, look at all the oppression that is still going on while these you know, bourgeois people live their comfortable lives and, and drink their wine and and, and uh, you know, dress all nice and go to the right cocktail parties and all of that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, there, there, there is a legitimate anger at all that. And I think that's kind of where I was going myself in preferring or at least feeling like I preferred those earlier, uh, grittier, angrier films. Uh, here, Bunuel, at the, uh, towards the end of his life, has sort of seemingly made peace with this upper middle class and then is sort of saying, yep, that's just how this world is. And I honestly, I kind of think there's truth in that. You know, this, mm-hmm. this is how the world is. Yeah, we're not going to just, you know, you know, drag the bourgeoisie out into the streets and, and chop off their heads or or force them to lower their standards so that everybody kind of meets somewhere in the middle, you know. Um, the revolution in France uh, kind of came and went. And by the early 70s, you know, de Gaulle had been reelected and the conservative bent of society uh, reasserted itself as kind of like that's that's the way things are and that's the way we like it. Uh, so do you stay in the state of perpetual anger and, you know, shaking your fist at it all? Or, you know, and, and of course, Bunuel being up there in years, he's in his 70s and making all of these films. He's he's at a different place. I think there's some interesting uh, commentary um, in that he saw old surrealist slogans spray painted on the walls of these venerable old French, you know, uh, architecture in, in downtown Paris. Uh, he he recognized the correlation between the kind of the fury and the anger of his own youth in the 1920s when surrealism and 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 all of that was a real viable uh, upheaval of its own and kind of the interregnum between the first and second world wars uh you know he saw all that that zeal it's 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 kind of like me watching young people today who embrace like the punk rock ethos like oh yeah i remember feeling all of that you know but i've kind of moved on i've got a family now i've kind of uh you know established my own life and i even though i can recognize and identify with those feelings to a certain extent i don't feel like i'm bound to have to maintain that stance uh emotionally or even intellectually you know i don't feel like there's a need to just burn down the system although i understand the the uh, the desire to just you know, overhaul everything and, and try to get it better with a with a fresh uh reset it's just it's 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 much more difficult to pull that off uh and so you feel like you've got to process and rationalize the status quo and i think that's what Bunuel is doing here and because there are people who are just not at that same place as he is um you know they feel like he's he's softened up or he's 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 taking it too easy on these guys yeah he's not tearing them down anymore he's just right. exposing and mocking yeah, even though he's, he's one too. of them in a certain <clears throat> sense, and and he he says yes, I am bourgeois, you know. So uh, he's not he's not immune from that critique. He's just saying, here's how it is. This is how I see it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting stuff uh, because there's there's still something to this, and it might even I don't know if 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 it helps a few of us see ourselves then I think there's still value versus putting people on their defensive who are actually in these, um, you know, going down some of these paths. But I see this mm-hmm. kind of stuff all over the place. I mean, in my profession, in my mm-hmm. community, um, the, and 
it, it can feel a, a little bit abhorrent. You, you want some paths forward rather than just uh, to witness the complacency. <laughs> but I still love this right. film, even though to me it, it is more of a witnessing mm-hmm. and an exposing than any kind of, um, you know, final, uh, the, the final shots of the exterminating angel where you're like, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll, we'll spoil it for anybody who didn't prepare for these films that are for our mm-hmm. podcast episode by looking at that film. But, you know, that's a lot more uh, tearing down than, than, than we're going to get here. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think, I think Boonwell's, you know, grappling with this whole issue of terrorism and and violence uh, with a political uh, angle or or objective in mind, you know, I think that is maybe him wrestling a little bit with his younger self um, when when he recognizes, you know, that uh, Andre Breton, one of the great you know kind of godfathers of surrealism, mm-hmm. mentions the the ultimate surrealist gesture is to take a gun and start taking shots at the crowd, kind of just random uh, gun violence. Well, you know, we live in a time where that's no laughing matter. I mean, anytime you go to a mall or a theater or a place where there's a large gathering, there's at least a statistical possibility that there might be some maniac who's going to just go off and start taking people out for whatever reason. And so, uh, our society here in the USA, and, and I also know that this happens in some other parts of the world, but in the USA in particular, that kind of stuff uh, is a lot more um, familiar, and, and it's, a, it's an experienced reality that a lot of us can relate to just because it happens in the news every so often and on scales that I don't even think you know, Bunuel could have imagined. If you think about like the Las Vegas shooting from several years ago and, and other situations like that. Uh, so yeah, that was a rhetorical flourish. It was kind of this outrageous young man's, you know, banter of just saying the most, you know, flippant, uh, disreputable, outrageous things just to get an effect. Well, now you start seeing that stuff actually happening uh, it, 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 it changes the context. And, and as we, as we see, terrorism was definitely a thing in the early seventies. You had the, the Bader Meinhof and you had the Olympics of 72 and you had, uh, you know, hijacked planes and bombings and, and nations all over the world by, you know, small cells, radical groups. I think it's even easy nowadays to lose track of how often that kind of stuff was happening. Um, you know, all over the place in the late sixties, early seventies. So, yeah. So those themes really come up in in all three of these films. I mean, Mm -hmm. well, is really has a sustained engagement with this idea of, of random politically targeted violence. Um, Maybe not so random violence, but violence Mm -hmm. that, that affects random people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now go into that final, you know, final area of the film where, Fernando Rey has to reach out to get that piece of lamb mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then is, is executed because of it. You know, he could maybe have, have, have escaped or remained hidden for a time. Again, it, it doesn't seem, and, and I'm, I'm glad for this. That's not Buñuel answering. He's not saying these people like deserve that. He may be saying they brought it on themselves to an extent, 
Mm-hmm. But I don't get the sense that he's saying you deserve it. And the look that Fernando Ray has as they <laughs> when they when they shoot him is one of he's the one with the disdain and he's got the meat in his hands. Right. It's like, like you know, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to have this last delicious mm-hmm. slice of lamb. I don't it's, it's almost like his well and his he's a slave of his appetite, you know. He he's basically his 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 craving is what was his undoing. And, and it's not going to change him. Right. It's his undoing for life, but it isn't going to redirect his life or anybody else in this. That seems mm-hmm. to be maybe something, again, Buñuel is saying. And I don't know if you are if you have other thoughts, I'm happy to do it. But this actually segues really nicely into the next film. Sure. And the way that I wanted to kind of maybe tee it up a little bit. Uh, this is The the Phantom of Liberty, uh, 1974. Uh, Buñuel has made enough money with this film. And, uh, you know, he's won the Academy Award. He's got more freedom to make an even more nonsensical film. And mm-hmm, he does it mm-hmm. in The Phantom of Liberty, <laughs> which to me seems to be even more Buñuel saying, there is a major myth out there that we have any control over the randomness of our lives. And it, this film kind of just cuts that all apart. And I think that I think that feels like maybe a little bit what we're talking about here. Like you can direct this anger, you can direct this... Um, you know, this desire for revolution or for, for change. But we really don't have that much to do about any of it. And I think he's right and wrong. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. I'm not so fatalistic as that. But at the same time, there's a, um, a frustration that can come if we don't accept that there is that aspect to change. It's not going to happen the way we want it or on our timetable. And that's just because so much is simply out of our control. It doesn't mean it's not worth trying but it i think this film goes into that that's at least that's the sense i get out of what might be my favorite film in this in this set <laughs> well i think this is this is the film that is the most provocative of the three and that it's it's not quite as um well it's not as charming <laughs> as the discreet charm <laughs> of the bourgeoisie you know you you do have some interesting moments where you you can feel sort of there's a, con- a continuity in fact in, in in the liner notes for uh, the Phantom of Liberty, uh, Gary Indiana, the writer, a critic, he kind of says, you know, he doesn't really consider these films a trilogy as more like one long continuous film that was hmm. released in three different installments. And, <laughs> and I think there's there's truth to that. I mean, without really referring to notes, um, if just going off of memory, and I'm sure this will this will fade over time it'll be difficult to remember which scene came from which film, you know, unless mm-hmm. you're thinking, okay, well, Delphine Seyrig was in, in, uh, in discreet charm and Monica Viti, she was in uh, Phantom <laughs> of Liberty. So, so you might be able to distinguish it, but, but it, that, that kind of unraveling randomness, that jumping from one storyline to another through the flimsiest of connections, or we, a character walks in and we, we kind of, you know, where it seems like they're just like a minor piece to this larger scenario. Well, nope, they're going to be the focus of the next story. <laughs> and it's just going to go you know, like that on and on f- over the course of the film. Uh, but the subject matter is definitely, you know, uh, more life or death. Uh, the, the stakes do feel higher here. Uh, the the insinuations of what's going on definitely gets gets darker and creepier. You know, necrophilia, pedophilia, just you know, kind of uh, some 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 nasty business. And yet, even that is is delivered with this kind of ironic humor uh, that again 
raises the stakes, but then deflates them and lowers them by kind of the offhandedness, you know, what, what seems like a very creepy guy who's like standing at the bottom of a slide, mm-hmm. watching young girls go down the slide. I mean, obviously he's looking for little peaks up the skirt. Um, and then he gives these photographs to these two young girls and says, oh, these are beautiful photos, but do not show them to any adults. I mean, our minds are being led down mm-hmm. this kind of sleazy, uh, sinister path and, and everything kind of feeds into that, especially at, at first viewing where you know the girls come home, they, they show them their mother, these photographs they're, they're obviously not following the, the, the old creepers, uh, directions by handing them right over to their mother. First thing when they walk in, and then you see the parents' reactions. Oh, this is disgusting. But it also sort of has an arousing effect on them. So when you finally do see the photos, you know, spoiler alert, they're, they're postcards, basically. And and, and so, you, so now French you've got... Architecture. Of, of French it's architecture. French architecture, like, right. It's not yes. like even, you know, French art. It's French architecture. <laughs> right, right. And as they're holding the ones, like, oh, this is unbelievable. Oh, so disgusting. I can't believe it. You know, where, you know, where are the boundaries? You know, anything goes these days, right? You know, it's... And and so you you see that kind of classic surrealist juxtaposition where the the ordinary is is cast as obscene and the obscene is is regarded as just kind of an everyday thing in life you know and and so it's it again it calls us to question why do we consider certain acts proper and decent to share in mixed company and other things are private I mean, the whole thing with the meals you know you mm-hmm. you you sit on toilets and talk about body functions around the table but then if you're hungry you find a little room where you can sort of gnaw on your you know <laughs> leg of lamb uh, without without having to be witnessed by anybody else <laughs> it's, it's that juxtaposition that just kind of gets us to review all of our customs and habits with a fresh set of eyes yeah, these social rituals. And the, and the reason that works in this film for me, again, these are things that you can see Monty Python sure. playing around with. And maybe for the same reasons working. But these actors are playing it so spot on. Yeah, um, yeah. The, like when he's in that private room eating and someone knocks on the door, you see his like consternation that I'm engaged in a very private thing this is a little bit embarrassing maybe even impolite of the person who knocked i mean this is not even a door you knock on because you know what's going on on the others you know you see all that on his face but he's just eating a meal yeah well and he (laughs) says the word occupy occupy you know he says that which and and there's a scene like that in uh tuva bien the godard film with jane fonda and yves montan where the this is a factory that's kind of been overrun by the workers and they've kind of kidnapped and are holding hostage the the boss the manager of the factory and there's a a funny scene where he has to use the bathroom and and uh, all the bathrooms are occupied and the person inside says occupy so apparently occupy is kind of like the french custom mm-hmm. for saying somebody's in here you know like rather than just the doors locked and you don't say anything like that's what i i, I never say anything if i'm in a locked bathroom at work and somebody you know wiggles the handle and it's locked I don't say I'm in here. You know, it's like, just, you know, the door's locked, mind your own business, go they away. Go you know? along. <laughs> but apparently, you know, uttering this word is kind of the, the custom there. So he's, he's throwing these kind of little conventions out there. But, uh, but of course, occupy is like, I'm eating. Can't you leave me alone? Yeah. <laughs> Have you no respect for my privacy? Right. 
But it does. It goes from one scene to the next, following one character that was minor in one and just follows them out. And we never go back to the other characters often. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it doesn't even start in the same time period. It, it starts back in, in um, Toledo, uh, Spain. And let's see here. I'll have to look up the notes. But like uh, the... Yeah. The, the Goya painting, right, uh-huh, right. The execution. The guy with mm-hmm. his arms outstretched and the white shirt facing the firing squad. I mean, the painting itself is actually you know, right up on the screen. It's kind of almost like one of the first images you see right there. And then mm-hmm. they kind of enact that whole moment, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the and Napoleon's then... army and they're kind of knocking down the rabble. And you get into that necrophilia all of a sudden, which is like, yeah. where did this come from? But it's a, it's it's an old story uh, where this starts from, and then it brings you to the present day, and then you follow these characters, you know, like those little girls um, mm-hmm. to their to their home. But then we don't see them for a little while. We we spend time with the parents, and then they bring in the postcard, and then the parents, you know, the the husband goes to see his doctor, and then lo and behold, it's we just we're going from one thing to the next throughout yeah yeah and it's, it's all these random connections that make it all part of this big network of narratives mm-hmm. that and it isn't just oh sorry go ahead no no well they, they don't necessarily have a a sense or a conclusion it's, i mean this isn't like one of these brilliant you know labyrinthine novels where you've got all these or movies that are being made you know so often these days where you've got all these random characters and they all come together at this big moment of crisis you know right where right. you know it's not like magnolia or right something right like that where yeah it all kind of comes to this apocalyptic culmination uh, no it's just it's just if if there is a pattern if there is a an end point where it all comes together and makes sense um it's it's much further beyond the, the scope of this movie. The, the mm-hmm. movie is just kind mm-hmm. of a, a random slice. And that is kind of how life is. You know, there, there is, doesn't seem to be this kind of culminating, bringing it all together. I mean, there may be certain situations that get resolved by some dramatic action or decision, or maybe the death of a person or, or uh, the overthrow of a government or, or some kind of other breakthrough. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we're, like those discreet charm characters just continuing to walk on the road, not exactly sure where it goes, but <laughs> you just got to keep walking, right? What else are you going to do? Yeah. And I mean, I think of like shortcuts or even that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the film that I really hate is crash, you know, just these things where you have these <laughs> yes. little vignettes, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. but that you're right. They come together in this one. We'll never see these guys again. And, and, but not only that, not only are we going through their lives, but we're going through their dreams Mm-hmm. And their their unreality. I mean, we've got the these this couple in bed, and then you know the mailman rides his bike through their room to to make some deliveries to them yeah. in the middle of the night, and that and he puts an envelope on the sheets, and the guy <laughs> has that envelope, and he shows it to his uh, psychiatrist the next day, or whenever that appointment takes place, and so he opens the letter, and we're thinking, what's in the letter? What what is it? You know, well, no, we never even get that satisfaction either, right? Right, because He's... now we're off to travel with with the psychiatrist nurse who has to go visit her <laughs> ailing father, and and there's yeah, that's it the end of the the Vitti and Briali scene which is also important I think the the casting of Monica Vitti and Jean-Claude Briali you know, kind of two uh, character actors uh, and and 
kind of legendary figures from the from the French New Wave or uh, Italian cinema. I think Monica Vitti had actually gone over into to doing some French films as well. But they're kind of iconic figures themselves and, and cast pretty early, but then almost dismissed. It's like, whoa, that's is you got some real star power here, but you're not really getting the full value or benefit from from having their presence uh, and involvement in this film. Uh, it's like the, the way that Catherine Deneuve was in both Tristana and Belle de Jour. Well, she's you know, a, a great mm-hmm. legendary actor, super photogenic and all of that. Uh, Vidi and Briali almost seem a little bit wasted here, but, you know, they do their thing and then we move on. Isn't that part of the punchline? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah. It does seem like a lot of these things are set up as punchlines, even the, and this is where it's like, oh, that is so disturbing. The, the, the creepy man, you know, mm-hmm. that whole scene where we are led to think of child abduction and pedophilia mm-hmm. plays out to ultimately get to the punchline about French architecture, which is also a punchline for the, those characters, you know, from the French new wave. It, mm-hmm. It's a, mm-hmm. it, it's a bunch of things coming together. It can feel deflating. It can feel disrespectful to real issues in a way that's uncomfortable that this is how Buñuel is, is treating all of these things as more mere setups mm-hmm. for, um, for a joke than again, more, more like his earlier films as actual calls to change. Uh, it's, it's bizarre. And I said it earlier, this is maybe my favorite film of this bunch. I don't know if that's true or not. And right now I'm sitting here thinking, how can that be? There's nothing that, um, there's not, not much I can point to that says, here's the message I get that's, but I just think it's so well done. And the message is that this is chance and dreams and it's true, but it's not true. You know I mean? It's the surrealism. It just plays out yeah. so well. And I think part of it too is is the the again it's so well put together. The this the, my favorite scene is the the disappearance of the little girl. Speaking oh, of yeah. you know child yeah. the disappearance and that that threat, the little girl who's right there the whole time, and that they can see and that they interact with while they're talking to the police about their little girl who has disappeared, and they're like, "Well, t- describe her to us." And they look at her to give the description and the police actually <laughs> talks to her and tells her sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be quiet right now. I'm talking to them about, you know, right. your disappearance. We, we, yes. and- <laughs> we, we have a job to do here, little girl, you know, don't, don't, don't interrupt us, you know? And, and it, well, and I think again, there are so <clears throat> many, you know, um, instances where it does feel like the narrative needs to be pursued, even though the solution is, is kind of right there, but it's like, no, we have to follow this tangent all the way to the, mm-hmm. we, we have a missing child. And so all the gears are in place. All you know, yeah. uh, in, in motion to, to let, let the police do their thing and the grieving parents and the anxiety. And it's <laughs> like, don't, don't mess up our plan here, you know, by, by mm-hmm. appearing when, when we really haven't cued you to do that quite yet. <laughs> But I, I do love it. And I, I brought up Roberto Bolaño and, mm-hmm. you know, as the author a few times in the past, a lot of people hate his works because they, they meander a little bit and they can build up this suspense for something that never pans out. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what's the point? And I'm kind of like, that is the point that is yeah. worthy of exploration. That is worthy. your the subversion of your expectations because if, if if this only plays out the way you expect it to, what what is their value to it? You know mm-hmm. what what is the what is the point 
if if the point is what you always expected it to be. Um, right. Whereas sometimes the randomness and the pointlessness is the point. Having your expectations of what should follow, you know, in a causal relationship from this, that, and the other event, suddenly not do it, is why I think this film is about your lack of control. Um, sure. And does it in a funny way, but that's a pretty serious, um, pretty serious thing uh, to 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 start to grapple with personally. Yeah, I mean, there are there are filmmakers who can do a really good job with suspense and drama and ratcheting up the tension and and you know taking you along for this this fatalistic ride. I mean, think about Melville, you think about Kurosawa, where mm-hmm. or, and others where you know and they're okay, wonderful. I'm not the, well, of to course, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and so what they do is, <clears throat> is they they do take you on that ride. They do bring you to that point of tension and that resolution and that kind of shocking, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's its own it's its own pleasure and joy right, and purpose exactly and and Bunuel, i mean he's not trying to make those types of movies and he is you know showing in a sense the the limitations or the conventions of you know uh traditional narrative storytelling where you know you you do go through those motions but and in some ways you become sort of stuck in that and i think yeah for for people who are looking for movies that offer it's that kind of satisfaction, that payoff, this is going to be a very frustrating experience. So you know, can, can you readjust your own expectations to say, here we're going to go into a work of art that is deliberately not going to satisfy that, that traditional sense of what ought to happen or how a movie ought to wind up. It's, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like expressionism or, or um, minimalism in art. Uh, you know, you see a, a painting of just a solid color or a Jackson Pollock where it's just all, you know, blobs and, and smears and scattering of paint. Well, you're you're approaching that painting with a different um, set of expectations than what you're going to see in something that's more, you know, realistic or, 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 or maybe more symbolic. Uh, and that's the thing, you know, people think, well, is Bunuel trying to, you know, bowl us over with symbolism here? He's like, no, he's specifically not. Now he's using things like, you know, religious imagery and iconography and other things that, you know, are often presented to us as symbols pointing to some kind of higher or transcendent reality. But he's also reminding us, no, these are just things you know so when the soldiers are eating the communion wafers like they're potato chips you know or when the mm-hmm. when the monks are gambling and smoking and sitting around the table using their religious medallions as 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 wagering you know uh, devices uh he's he's re-objectifying these things and and part of it is is for the absurd humor of it and part of it is just a reminder of how much we invest ordinary objects or elements with this kind of exalted significance yeah a when, meaning when there's yeah, a meaning one. right uh, or or that there doesn't have to be I right mean, it could just right. be this is a piece of metal uh it's it's like money we all agree that money has value it doesn't really do anything of its own um, accord but because we all agree to go along with the game um, now money becomes meaningful and, and significant and, and effective it's saying i can give you enough of this substance this this paper this coin or or nowadays just a digital you know transfer from one account to the other and now things can happen because we've made that exchange uh 
I think there's a value in being able to step back from that and say, yeah, why is it that way anyways? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what is, what is the, <clears throat> the, the driving force behind it all? Yeah. And thanks for correcting. I didn't mean to necessarily suggest there's no meaning, but mm-hmm. you're right. It's, it's what we invest in it. It's, it's, there doesn't have to be, um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of that. I would say more symbolism is going on in the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. than in this film, because you're right. Most of these things are him taking, you know, let's just put it that cigar and showing it as a cigar, not something invested with other, with other bits of meaning. He's mm-hmm. stripping away so much of that, what we get from social ritual, what we get from, um, you know, narrative expectations. And I couldn't watch a film like this all the time no, because then right. it becomes, then it truly could become pointless. <laughs> you know, like if, if everyone wrote, if on a winter's night, a traveler by Italo Calvino, which similarly, you know, starts a bunch of narratives and does not finish them. Um, I don't want to read that again and again and again and again from, right. from various perspectives and people because it's its own thing and it's a unique perspective. I think Bunuel hits that line here of, of being truly insightful as he's exploring these things. And again, very well put together, very mm-hmm. well acted, very well shot. I mean, the photography in this thing can be just absolutely stunning at times. It looks great. It looks so good on Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and also just the efficiency and the control of, of his camera yes. work. And, and the fact that there's there's a lot of, you know, sophisticated stuff, but it's it's all very subtle. He's He's not, you know, self-consciously you know, bowling you over with, you know, sweeping camera movements. He's not like a Max Ophuls where you just marvel at, at the fluidity and, and the complicated tracking shots. And some of them are in there, but he's not drawing attention to that. He's And, and I think you, you talked earlier about how he was kind of enabled or, or uh, sort of uh, re-energized by some of the people working around him, uh, Silberman, the producer, Carrier, the mm-hmm. the the writer, and and others, um, who I think his associate director, uh, assistant director, is is one of the you know characters. Uh, he pops up in the films every once in a while, and there's a nice little interview with him in the supplements here. Uh, that's like we're just going to let Don Luis do what he does, and we'll take care of all the other stuff. <laughs> and and I think that's a, it's a really uh, lovely collaboration because you're right. He probably doesn't have the same energy and drive that pushed him through his years in Mexico or even the early sixties. Uh, he's, he's, he's maybe not quite as energetic or as forceful, but he still knows what he wants to do from a certain vantage point as, as the director. And so everybody puts, puts the, the pieces, uh, in place and then he hits the button and puts it in motion uh, he doesn't direct his actors. He he has them walk through the scenes, but he he says, "Here's where I need you to to place yourself. Here's how I need your hands to move. This is where I need you to place the object." But it's not about the, you know, there's no method acting. We're digging deep into the the driving force behind this character. Uh, it, it's almost Bressonian in the way of like, okay, I want you to pose here, then turn your head there you know, make sure it's well lit and, and all of that. And and so that's another perhaps distancing point for some viewers who, who want to have that character engagement. They want to have maybe more of that cinematic flourish. Uh, well, Penwell's not interested in delivering that type of thing to you. So, you know, if this isn't for you, so be it. But <laughs> I, there's, there's a lot to enjoy here. And I think it's pretty brilliant in its own way. 
but well, also very unsettling. I mean, think about the the scene with the the young man and his aunt. Well, now now we're, oh, we're yeah. treading on kind of incestuous types of things. There's some uh, sadism, masochism. I mean, he's he's really ticking off all the list of taboos at one point or another in this film, and yet yeah. it's almost easy to forget how transgressive so much of it is because it's presented somewhat innocuously and and it seldom does it really linger over you know the the outrage or the you know the offense to traditional mm-hmm. morality that that you, you can see is being presented there and well and often too deflated by the punchline like mm-hmm. even the ant mm-hmm. when you know she's an older older aunt when he goes and uncovers her lo and behold there's a beautiful young woman there, <laughs> exactly, you know, yeah. and it can be, it's just so shocking that you forget what the implications were. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a stunt, you know, and again, you know, is that, is that, is that wit? Is that kind of a, a brilliant maneuver or is it a, a, a cheap shot? You know, I think that's where the critics of this movie might say, ah, he, he's, he's just being too whatever indulgent or whatever mm-hmm. word you want to throw at it but i don't know I, I don't really need to spend my time critiquing the critics <laughs> <laughs> well i can see where they're coming from mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. for sure and and maybe this kind of thing just doesn't doesn't resonate uh because i i, I probably I, I might even say that this may be the film that i least liked until i rewatched it Mm-hmm. Um, of this whole bunch because it's so weird. I don't. I didn't remember anything about it until I rewatched it back in January when it came out, and you know it's got the the kind of vulgar um, design, the, the 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 Statue of Liberty ish that looks more like a butt, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the the flaccid uh, lamp torch you know, that's, there, yeah, torch right. that, that's that's falling down. <laughs> I mean. It's like, yeah, he is being provocative. Is he now being just so crass it doesn't have any meaning for me anymore? And no, I don't think the film is like that. Um, that image imagery suggests it, it, it's not quite like that. But yeah, he is still playing with taboos. Mm-hmm. He is still doing things that he did, again, stepping back you know, over his career, um, putting the audience there in uncomfortable situations. Uh, but But yeah, there's a little bit of a subversion here that makes it... Um, makes it feel meaningless. But again, I I appreciate that I I have made my peace with that. Maybe I've excused it too much by saying that's exactly what he's trying to say to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Your expectations are meaningless to me. (laughs) You know. <laughs> well, even even the, the 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 concluding scenes of the movie, uh, which is basically the soundtrack of gunshots and mm-hmm. rioting, while we look at these animals in a zoo, like what is up with that? You know, yeah, uh, is it, he it, all of a sudden being meaningful again? It, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or or is it just kind of a, a final tweak? You know, we see that that emu or ostrich that was kind of walking through the kind of the insomniac late night thing <laughs> and now and that's and that's it it's just and and again when Bunuel is has asked in one of the uh, interviews uh that are printed out as a supplement in in the booklet that comes with the box set he just says oh i just i just like the the look of the face you know and <laughs> it is i mean it's it's a fascinating visage you know the eyes the beak the the, the way it sort of seems to stare right directly at the viewer kind of <clears throat> questioning what's going on. And, and we recognize, I mean, you know, 
the old cliche, the bird brain here. I mean, but this is a perceiving creature, a non-human that seems to be interrogating us just with its gaze, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's size and it's grandeur. I mean, these are big birds. They're pretty impressive creatures. You know, uh, we don't, we're not used to seeing birds of that size of that bulk of even of that kind of potential danger. If they decide that they really want to come after us or if there wasn't a fence in between us or the, or the, the, the ostrich, um, you know, that, that, that could uh, definitely present a bit of a challenge, but that, that's, that's the conclusion of the film. And I think because it is, uh, sort of so anticlimactic, I think that that is one of the reasons, cause I had that same experience, like what, what happened in this movie again? I mean, I'd seen it <laughs> and I've seen it several times over the years, you know, but it's probably the one that I was the least, uh, drawn to return to like um the street charm because it is a a winner of awards and because i think it does have a little bit more of a narrative you know flow to it because it's you're following the same characters throughout the entire film and then you know the the one we're about to talk about the the obscure object of desire that is again another i mean it's not a conventional narrative but it's certainly has more of a beginning, middle, and end than, than mm-hmm. Phantom of Liberty, which really does, it is, in that sense, sort of like a Monty Python episode. You know, there might be a theme or a title to it, but it just sort of ends with kind of a, you know, all right, our time is up, we're done. <laughs> it's a, it's time well, to move on to the next thing, yeah. I'm thinking back to what you said about the, you know, medallions and mm-hmm. things that have meaning because we've given it to him, but he's just making them objects again. And I don't know, I'd have to think about this further, but ending with the shot of that emu, mm-hmm. is he doing the same to us? Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that as just people, as just, a, you know, we're going through through life, it, it ultimately we are given meaning, mm-hmm. but it can be taken away as well. Um, I mean, I have a different view of life and of people than that, mm-hmm. but I can mm-hmm. definitely see the, the point again to recontextualizing it and saying, you know, what do you know about all the people who have lived and, and what is what is remembered, what is meaningful about someone who is, is past? Are we just like this emu, rather meaningless right. in, a, right. in a sense? Yeah. Is there an explanation for it all? Is there <clears throat> a, a final resolution or or conclusive statement that um, places everything mm. in some sort of a context or is it just an ongoing question of what, what's going on here anyway? When we're gone, the emu will still <laughs> still roam the earth <laughs> for a time, anyway. <clears throat> well, let's go on to the that obscure object of desire, Buñuel's yes. last film. He, you know, he, he he lived for another few years, I think four or five, mm-hmm. and wrote his autobiography with um, Carrere, which I've never read. But you know, that's coming up next. But this is his mm-hmm. final film, mm-hmm. and he almost didn't make it. Because when it all started, he was casting, you know, his actresses and the one that they chose and started filming with simply was not working. (laughs) Right. It was Maria Schneider. She mm -hmm. was probably most famous for being in The Last Tango in Paris. But I think she'd been in some other films uh, after that and was a bit of a name. I mean, she was... I don't know if she was remembered as a major star, but obviously Last Tango has its own kind of notoriety Mm -hmm. and 
what she experienced on that film perhaps i could say has not aged well um right uh it has not been released by criterion uh in the dvd blu-ray era although it was a i believe a laser disc back in the day but it's one of those problematic films now in the uh you know uh, me too era and all of that but in any case marie schneider apparently just wasn't on the same wavelength as Benwell. in fact she or any she, of them it sounded like yeah like yeah. the crew was also like Man, she seems good in rehearsal, but when you pull mm-hmm. her out here, she just doesn't seem to be on set. Well, and I, I think what I get from some of the kind of incidental comments, uh, and I certainly have no great insight into the actual dynamics, but she seemed to have been a little bit more opinionated and perhaps a little less deferential, like she would give her opinions as to whether that was a good take or not. And and I think in some ways that was a bit unseemly, mm-hmm. like Don Luis was a revered, uh, he was the director, he was the boss here. And, and I would even say that she may have been a little bit more emancipated or liberated as a, as a young woman of that era than Bunuel himself was ready to deal with. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not taking well, her side against Bunuel, but I just kind of get the sense that she was a little bit you know, <laughs> flippant, and that that didn't so sit well with him. Yeah. What a way to introduce this film! <laughs> <laughs> yes, this yeah. film, which which if you look at the art on the Criterion cover, it's the same as the original poster art. Yeah, is of a woman's lips sewn together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something going on here. Speaking of maybe Buñuel um, criticizing himself. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, what yeah. where he is with a film that's somewhat problematic, and then you start to talk about it, you can see how it's exploring some of those problems from a, a perspective of trying to explore and understand them better, yeah. not just yeah. to portray that obscure object of desire as an object of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the, the sealed lips is is a really nice you know it makes you feel a little better going into it that it knows uh, what it's about a little bit better than it it may seem at times when you're watching the film <laughs> yeah well and it, 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 uh, the, the, <clears throat> the threads on those lips bring to mind the corset of course you know the mm-hmm. that is uh, well i mean we should probably get into the the story or the <laughs> this setup one's much more narratively yeah. isn't yeah. it it's, yeah. it's not a, the others we could just start rambling on about the film and it, you know felt well, like it's, the film itself yeah. but this one I has mean, a a plot Right. It's, it's it's literally, it's a story that's told by the main character mm-hmm. as, as a series of flashbacks to a group of people sitting on a train, which is... A man, such a, uh, the main so, character, yeah. Fernando Ray, the man. Yep, yep. He's the one yep. who, who has the words, like Humbert Humbert and Lolita. Right, He's right. the narrator. Yeah, and he, he's known as Matthew or Matteo uh, at different points in the film. So uh, the French or the Spanish versions of that name would, would be Matthew in English, I guess. Uh, he, <laughs> the the film opens with him pouring a bucket of water. Well, there's some other things that happen, but but the kind of the the the, the triggering gesture is where there's a woman who's bruised and bandaged, um, mm-hmm. and uh, she's walking uh, up. And to get about to get into a train, and and he steps up in front of her, prevents her from getting on the train, and then dumps a bucket of water. And she's she's an attractive young woman, even though she's, you know, definitely been subjected to some kind of mistreatment. We don't exactly know what's going on here, but she's she's you know, 
like I say, bruised and battered. He dumps a, a bucket of water and then he sits down on the seat of, of his train car. <laughs> and there's a few other people, uh, a, a woman with a young child, a young girl, uh, a, a young girl, right? A, a dwarf uh, who also introduces himself as a psychologist. And I think there's another character or two in there, maybe an older couple, or an older man, like that. older yeah. man. And, and they're like, what's that all about? <laughs> you know, I mean, pretty natural question. Why would you dump a bucket of water on this young woman? And he goes, goes on to explain what what all the events that led up to this why this she had moment, it coming why she deserved it yes exactly and it's really just a story of a man's obsession uh with a with a beautiful young woman and uh the ups and downs of their relationship and as in you know the obscure object where they could just never get the satisfaction of a good meal. Uh, he was never able to get the satisfaction of the sexual encounter that he desired to have with her. That's that's the object of desire. Is this is this young woman, and uh, they have a relationship, and it goes through all sorts of you know chapters and and phases of attraction and repulsion, but it never reaches its culmination, <laughs> at least from the man's point of view. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a film about uh, sexual craving and obsession and frustration and the, you know, the dynamics of the resentments that, that build up when uh, expectations are not met, you know, uh, there's, there's interruption, there's, there's a, uh, disruption there's there's thwarting of of desires and um of what might seem like very reasonable expectations uh, mm-hmm. that go unfulfilled I yeah i want to get there yeah th- that this could be an exceptionally uncomfortable film and it probably is triggering to many people it's yeah. not an easy watch by any means but it is one of the best that I've ever seen in, in things that we think about more today, 50 years later of, of how to address some of this stuff. Well, for, 45 or so years later, you know mm-hmm. how to address some of this stuff in the me too era. This is a man who feels that he is a good man who has treated this woman with respect. He has helped her financially. He's helped her family. He feels he deserves this. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's insinuated to him, at least he interprets as such. And he tell you know, this is him again, telling the story that she appreciates him. And so again, yeah. he, he feels like, well, that naturally leads to sex. Mm-hmm. And he is very threatened. If she shows desire for anybody else, yeah. um, he, he feels like he is the one who should have this and him alone. And it's that that good boy syndrome of of well, look at all the things I've done to deserve this. How come it's not mine? How come I, how come I cannot have the satisfaction that I'm entitled to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and Fernando well, Rey is so good at that self because this is a this is a tough role to to play. I think it's yeah. He's he does a great job. I'll, I'll sorry. I'll I'll step back and let you, oh, let you respond to what I said there. I think I think she you know she also um, implies that you know this isn't the right time, but just give me time. I'll I'll be ready. So so she he does, says. So she, but well, but even if she does, even if she yeah. does, but again, we got to keep that in mind that that's mm-hmm. this is him telling the story. But you're right. She's you're right. she does maybe lead him on, or at least again. 
that's, that's what how, he thinks. Yeah, and that's what he's relating to us. So you're right. And that's, mm-hmm. that is really important to keep in mind that everything that happens on screen is according to how he's telling the story, you know? So yeah, there, there could be hypothetically a film that was made from her point of view that would <laughs> sort of explain the relationship from, from her perspective. Now it's also probably worth pointing out, although it's, I don't know, I'm not sure how essential it is to the whole plot and, and the whole narrative that Fernando Ray is quite a bit older than this yes. woman. I mean, he yeah. might be even in his 60s at this point where uh, this woman, uh, Conchita, uh, is 19, 20, 21. I mean, I think the, one of the two actresses that played her was only 19 at the time. The, uh, <laughs> That's Carol the first Bouquet. time we brought up the two actresses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And just kind of slide that on in there, <laughs> which is kind of how the movie presents it as well. Yeah, yeah um, that works that that um so there's a very significant age gap i mean he could be this woman's grandfather you know uh, biologically speaking but i I don't know that that's even a a central thrust of the story this could have been told uh, you know if ray had happened to be much younger um or if the woman had happened to be older and they were closer together in age i don't think they're really playing off of that angle but it's it's hard to 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 overlook it entirely as well yeah. as you're watching the film. Yeah. And you're right. I think he is about, I mean, if we're looking at this just in terms of their literal ages, he's 59, 60 while they're filming. Mm-hmm. And that both of the actresses are in their very early twenties or even late teens. Um, so yeah, there, that's there. And I think that's an element of his own pride. And, and I have been an upstanding person. This is what I'm used to getting. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is what I still deserve. And look, I, I'm not preying on, on anybody. She wants it too. You know, um, right. she's an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, he again has, has he met her when she was serving him as a, as a kind of a, I don't know, not, not the maid, but he's getting dinner and, yeah. and she, she, she's the one who serves it to them at a, at a home mm-hmm. and she's working class. She, he often runs into her at her job, wherever it might be. Um, she's a student. He runs into her with her friends that she seems to have this, you know, the friends all do look at him like he's the old, the old guy, the old creepy man, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit with disdain, you know, the other male friend in particular that never really says anything, but is often just there in the background. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, is she exploiting him? Is she using him, his wealth and, you know, his, because he is older, he is very established. Is she, is she leading him on? She's getting all of her kicks elsewhere. Um, and has no desire for him, but yeah, he's, he feeds her financially. He's, he's saving them in a way in this precarious situation of being a young, a young student or a young, you know, worker, Mm -hmm. uh, in a new country that she's been in, been in for a while now, but, um, you know, there's so much going on and I think the age plays into that, but you're right. This could easily be, and I think it has been in the past. This is an old story. Um, and it's made into a few films, um, one that we get a chance to see a little bit of in the in the uh, Criterion disc from you know the silent film mm-hmm. where you watch it and you're like oh I I would have assumed that was Buñuel's touch but nope it's part of the source right. material <laughs> it is it is amazing I mean, we're getting to the supplements already but but yeah some of those are almost like <laughs> shot for shot like uh-huh. she does uh, dance in the upper room there uh-huh. and the whole uh, encounter between uh, you know 
him and her with the iron gate in between and, and her lover that she brings in. I mean, that's like, wow. Yeah, it feels Buell, so really, Buellian. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> but, and it's also, it, it is an interesting reminder that you know, as, as, as influential as Bunuel is, um, he's, he's also a, a creature of, of his own influences. I mean, he, he watched early cinema and was mm-hmm. shaped by that and mm-hmm. did his own sort of take on that. And I think it is fascinating to sort of see that he was in some ways paying a very faithful homage to a film that obviously must have made a pretty strong impression on him as a young man. And now here he is at the tail end of his, his cinematic career, um, almost doing shot for shot remakes, uh, but presenting them to a new audience that's never seen that old, you know, obscure nugget from the past and think, oh, that is the epitome <laughs> of Bunuel right there, you know. But I think he's definitely tapping into some archetypes about the temptress or, or uh, you know, the, the girl who leads him on, but sort of uh, taunts and, and teases. Uh, that's obviously a pretty strong uh, archetype uh, in the male imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman who kind of, you know, gets me all riled up, but doesn't give me satisfaction. And, and so she's the one who's kind of scapegoated or blamed or, uh, and if she is victimized, uh, like we said earlier, she had it coming <laughs> because, yeah. you know, she, she led him on and, and she should know better than to stir up a man's uh, passions like that and not expect that there's going to be some retaliation if she doesn't deliver. I mean, it's a very chauvinistic, uh, sexist way of looking at it, but it's certainly uh, a mindset that's very common and, and even to this day quite strongly justified in many circles. Mm-hmm. Including in the law, you know, you see this yeah, kind of yeah. this narrative play out in rape cases mm-hmm. as as a defense that right. gets people off. Right. Um, you yeah, know, she was dressed very provocatively. You know, mm-hmm. she was so revealing, mm-hmm. or she she was smiling at me while I was making my advances. So I kind of figured she was ready to go all the way. You know, and, and I'm a good person. Right, right. You know, and, and don't let this charge mess up my future. I'm such a promising young leader, you know, and yeah. they, you know, well, it was a college party. We were drinking. Things got it, you know, carried uh, carried away or boys will be boys, whatever justification. I mean, the, that's that's just ordinary. There, there's there's nothing all that remarkable, but there is obviously a cultural effort that's been underway for a while now to kind of recast those assumptions. But Mm -hmm. this really does tap into some of those very classic, what you would say, battle of the sexes to use kind of an old cliche there. Um, Which, which again, thinking of this film and its source material, it was, it was made into almost a, a much more fun battle of the sexes film that Mm -hmm. we, we might talk about sometime soon in the Dietrich von Sternberg set. Yeah, yeah, um, the devil is a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Uh, same where, source. Where, where, right, right, <laughs> right. And 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 there is there is something kind of uh, amusing and entertaining about uh, the idea of this flirtatious woman who's kind of toying with a man. I mean, there is a lot of humor to be found in that. You know, uh, the guy who's kind of getting his his uh, urges all you know, to a, to a fever pitch and, and is frustrated that that's, that's a source of great comedy and, and has been used by many, uh, you know, uh, movie makers, storytellers, books, novels, TV shows. Yeah. That that's, there's, there's a lot of laughs to be found in that because it, it has that ring of truth. I mean, uh, not just guys, but if you just think about, you know, guys sort of generically, 
I think a lot of us can relate to that idea of kind of getting turned on and then having to cool the jets because it's like, ah, it's just not the right place, right time. But boy, what do you do with that feeling when it gets kind of stirred up like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can also turn, you know, very serious and, and, and violent and, and even deadly, um, you know, when, when jealousy kind of spills over into aggression and, and a sense of ownership and entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, for whatever reason, think about Dorothy Stratton and, and the situation as she was the lover of Peter Bogdanovich, uh, a famous Playboy model, incredibly beautiful woman, uh, but she was shot to death by her ex-boyfriend as she was starting to build a career as a, as a, a Hollywood actor. Um, the, the, kind of ordinary working class guy that she was with couldn't handle that and he killed her and and uh, you know terribly tragic situation but that's kind of just one uh sort of representation of this kind of you know she did me wrong and it and ends in terrible tragedy so this film kind of takes us through many of those types of passages and interactions. I mean, and, and a lot of it is, is pretty <clears throat> funny, but there's a, there's kind of a, <laughs> a serious thread under underlying it all as well. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a part, and this is where I'm upset. I left my notes at work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I had some of the dialogue written down. There is a part where it seems she's able to speak a little bit about these issues. It's very brief. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's after, after she's been dancing and they're kind of talking and he says, I will always be, love you. And, 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 you know, it seems a moment that he might see her as a person for just a, gl- a glimpse. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is where she is real in the film. Um, and, but for the most part, she is portrayed as either very cold or very hot, you know, for mm-hmm. the situation. And that's deliberate. And yeah, and manipulative being... and, and, and mm-hmm. kind of taunting and scornful. Like she's, she's playing with him in a way that he doesn't think is fair or, or reasonable yeah. or acceptable. Especially after he's given her money. Well, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. He, he's, he's providing an, a comfortable life for her. And, and the other side of the bargain is that she will be sexually available for him. Um, when when he wants her to be you know and, mm-hmm. and that she just needs to deal he will with that. be patient but only yeah. for so long you know yeah exactly <laughs> which again is is a, a sense of that sort of aristocratic entitlement you know where mm-hmm. you know he's he's doing the gentlemanly thing but uh it's it's not indefinite and that he his his demands are not unreasonable and will be supported and backed up by all the right and respectable people yeah he'll give her time to come around to the right mm-hmm. thing to do and and he's telling and he's the that, story he's that respectful right. right and he's telling the story to the occupants of his of his train car feeling a hundred percent justified uh, in, in all the things that he does and they're, they're they agree yeah yeah right, something right that i find they're... very very fascinating is he he persuades them this is mm-hmm. the man telling the story again it's 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 fascinating to me. So let's get into the double actresses, but yeah. I, I also want to talk a little bit about this being Buñuel's film, written by a man, produced by another man, and some of the aspects of that that can almost come as him being, you know, 70 years old and casting these two beautiful young women um, at the same time. 
because it just felt like the right thing to do. And I am a hundred percent on board with that. It is mm-hmm. they, they're it's an amazing gimmick that pays off in, in amazing ways, I think in the film. And it was totally fortuitous because they, they weren't going to cast two women. Um, it was because the, it just wasn't working out. And then his, his producers called both Angela Molina and um, Carol Bouquet. Uh, wait, am I yeah. saying her name? No, uh, uh, back mm-hmm. almost in secret from their yeah. telling to per- do a little bit of rehearsal with Fernando Rey. And then maybe, maybe Buñuel will stumble in there and see that this film can still go on when he's actually thinking, I'm, I'm too old for this. I need to just drop it and leave. Yeah. And they convince him to watch. And he eventually says, okay, I'll have to choose one of them. I choose both. They're both wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and then and it, you, you almost see the light bulbs go on in a mind like, um, like, uh, the, his producer and writer, you know, that he's been mm-hmm. making all these bizarre films with, you can see them probably go, brilliant yeah, <laughs> we will make this right. work <laughs> yeah and and you're right because we're almost accustomed to seeing these kind of you know grand maneuvers by Bunuel, these these uh, flamboyant gestures and and uh reversals of expectations yeah you could you could easily imagine that this was the plan all along you know we're that's that's the the, the genesis of the film is we're gonna have this story Mm -hmm. of thwarted erotic desire uh, played by two different women who are in a way two different types you know right Um, uh, the carol bouquet is is elegant uh refined she's She's tall tall and slim and slender and and uh, has this kind of timeless beauty about her uh the other uh angela molina she's she's more of an earthy she's a flamenco dancer uh again very beautiful very attractive but of a different type she feels a little bit more grounded perhaps a little more accessible whereas carol bouquet is almost like this angelic ethereal type of presence who's you know the the classic beauty who almost seems a little bit unattainable but is in that sense almost you know even more desirable because she is up on that pedestal of sorts but she's also still young and and um still kind of vulnerable she was literally a teenager when she started making this film and in that sense maybe doesn't even fully grapple with how beautiful and desirable she is and so she's got that sort of young moldable uh, quality that I think is what makes you know younger women so uh, attractive to to older men. It's like wow, she's she she still doesn't even fully understand her power or her attraction, and uh, perhaps can be shaped and guided to my expectation. Again, going back to my Godard ex, uh, series, <laughs> where he was with Anna Karina, kind of made her into who she became as a, as a movie star, but then she kind of came into her own and decided that she and Jean-Luc were not meant to be a lifelong couple. And where he went after that was Anvia Zemsky, the, the young woman who was in uh, Brisson's O Hazard Balthazar. She herself mm-hmm. was only a teenager uh, when they started dating. They didn't get married until she, I think, turned 21, but he was approaching 40 at that point. So not quite the same age difference here, but you sort of see this this uh, this idealization of of aging men who want to get with you know very young women uh, you know in their late teens early twenties uh, almost from a power and control thing that they they feel at least they've got the ability to shape and 
and mold this young woman rather than somebody closer to their own age who might be a lot more independent and assertive and and kind of wants to do set the relationship on on their own terms rather than this more kind of traditional patriarchal hierarchy uh, which you know is interesting because these are you know progressive figures but they might still be bound to some very traditional uh, dynamics in terms of the male-female relationship. Yeah. So why why does the two women work so well? They are different, as we've talked about. They um, And they Buñuel specifically wanted them to play the character differently. He mm-hmm. wanted Angela Molina to play her more as the feisty, you know, Spanish uh, dancer. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he wanted Carol Buñuel uh, Bouquet to play her more as the, you know, a little bit more proper and prim, mm-hmm. um, elegant uh, beauty. But he said specifically too, I don't want them. I want the scenes that they play to be completely random, so it doesn't look like it's only when there's that type of character right. scene that's when we have Angela play, or only when it's this one do we have Carol play. I mean, they can they're they're very interchangeable mm-hmm. in the type of scene they're playing, even. And I, I didn't count them myself, but Bunuel wanted to make sure they both had the same number of scenes. Mm. So there is there is some artifice in, the, in how that was all arranged. But but you're right. They 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 each do scenes of affection, and they all each do scenes of conflict. They they each have their nude scenes, if you will, and and scenes where you know you can feel that intimacy is coming on only to have the brakes <laughs> pump right at the last minute there so so you're right there there's no formula and again in his interviews that are printed in the supplements bunwell repeatedly uh wants to make sure he's not becoming too formulaic or gimmicky or programmatic he really wants to preserve as much as he can some of that randomness and spontaneity uh so that there's no you know, singular key that says, here's what it all means, or this is mm-hmm. why she appeared at this moment versus the other actress. Obviously, um, uh, <coughs> Angela Molina is the dancer, so she's the one who does the flamenco scenes and all that. But I think it's, it is, it, it works because it feels natural. In fact, somewhere I, I also read 70% of viewers in the post screening survey didn't realize there were two different women which is like no. remarkable to me that it's it's it's, no it's one way. of the printed supplements yeah that, <laughs> that, and and I again that yeah it, it's <clears throat> it, it's a it's a really bizarre finding and i don't know if that was from the original screenings maybe <laughs> even before it was distributed but wow really i mean are people that no caught up boy. in the conventions but because i think that's probably what the film is most famous for at least in kind of our you know cinephile circles you know it's it's famous well. because he cast two women <clears throat> in the lead role but but Excuse i think me, the story you got me is... all <laughs> there <I'm coffee. laughs> but but uh you know it to me i feel like it is both playing into those uh, gender stereotypes but also subverting them and i think because um you know, we especially now in in 2021, viewing it in the kind of Me Too or post Me Too moment, um, 
you know, I feel a lot more uh, sympathy and and willingness to identify with with Conchita mm-hmm. as a woman who is entitled to set her own course and should not feel obliged uh, to go any further uh, erotically than than she maybe feels led to, and that that is part of uh, Matthew's uh, burden. He has to recognize uh, you know, her rights, her autonomy. Um, and if he wants her to personality, give... right. Her personality, I mean, right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, that, so the, the, the scene that I'm talking about is a part where she expresses her concern that Matthew mm-hmm. doesn't really know her. Yeah. Right. Uh, that, and that's, I think that's a brilliant way to have the two characters. I mean, it, it can emphasize two aspects. One, yeah, the protean nature of women for, mm-hmm. for, from a man's perspective. Yeah, right. 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 Um, but also the fact that he doesn't recognize her at all. He's just interested in her beauty. And yes, they are different people, but the, with they're both being beautiful, they're interchangeable to yeah. him. Yeah. He doesn't have any, any idea of her life. He's trying to bring her into his. And she recognizes that and kind of calls him out on that when she's talking about her own concerns and her own expectations for what she wants. And again, it's so brief but it's there and it's it's a heartbeat to the film that that uh, makes it so that you know she knows what's going on and that he has no idea he can say some of the right things that's where he says i'll love you to the very end but he doesn't know who he's talking to even right you know it, it, it the the whole idea of you know the trophy the the symbol the mm-hmm. arm the arm candy you know that the reason he's attracted to her is that a man of his station in life deserves to have a beautiful woman attending him you know and and i you're it is it and it is a dilemma in in relationships of of all sorts when it's based on an attraction of physical beauty um how you know while that may open a door does it go further than that and and um and for many men i think it is a challenge to especially if you've been raised um or feel like it's the natural order of things to uh you know you need to have a hot spouse <laughs> you know that that mm-hmm. that your partner has to have a certain look that complements your own and that conveys to the the watching world that you are of a certain status that you've 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 got a certain degree of power authority control respect wh- whatever you want to call it that says i'm capable of you know, having this beautiful woman by my side, uh, who satisfies me in, in many different ways, in, including sexually. Um, but is well, that or even really there? primarily, primarily, yeah. That, that's the, basically the others may wants. be out, right. yeah, <laughs> right. But but right, that, that that is kind of his ultimate objective, and because she is unwilling or perhaps to some degree incapable of fulfilling that need that justifies the um, derision and even the abuse and violence that he inflicts upon her. And that's like, wow, that's, that's a pretty, pretty heavy statement there mm-hmm. uh, that uh, in some ways is being made cast in kind of a, an amusing light, but there's, there's that, that seriousness that's underneath all of this as well, where, yeah. you know, how, how do we, how do men reckon with, the personhood of the women in their life if if their primary attraction and what keeps them loyal is is that sense of you know 
beauty and erotic attraction rather yeah. than anything primarily based on who she is as a human being. I don't know how much of this is because of where we sit in time right now, mm-hmm. you know, 2021, but that scene where she's walking along the the train platform, bruised and battered and yeah. um, bloodied, and then he dumps water on her, isn't like the Phantom of Liberty, where it all can be deflated with a punchline. Right. That doesn't play, to me, right now, as a punchline. It's It just doesn't. And so... But I am curious if it did the first time I watched it, you know, how much of this, how much of my own appreciation of this film has grown because of what's happened over the last few years versus before. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that for sure there's, there was always a discomfort for me with Buñuel being 70 and casting these young actresses. Uh, You know, my mind's probably like, yeah, because he knew that there were, you know, scenes where he, he, you know, I want to see them both. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, right. right. And, but but, he was very protective of these actors. Yeah. They, they, he made sure that the the set was empty. The, 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 the nudity was just for a shot. I mean, and I don't know, is this kind of having it both ways? I mean, I've said the same type of thing with Ingmar Bergman. I mean, Mm -hmm. he, he knowingly casts very beautiful women and, put them in, in kind of titillating uh, scenes at, at various points in his career. Um, there's an artistry, but there's also clearly, I think, at least a commercial angle to this. I mean, that was a selling point for many Bergman films in the 1950s and 60s is like, ooh la la, these beautiful Scandinavian <laughs> uh, voluptuous women, you're going to get to see things that you're not going to get to see in a typical Hollywood movie, right? So, um you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not trying to insult or discredit these films. I'm just recognizing that there is a a marketing angle going on here, and I mm-hmm. think there's that angle happening with this film as well. It's complicated, and maybe mm-hmm. it's getting more complicated in the better way than mm-hmm. it used to be, where it was easy mm-hmm. to dismiss these things. Yeah, the I think the bucket of from him. right the the bucket of water over the head was probably almost the equivalent of like a, a custard pie in the face from yep. like the yep. Stooges mm-hmm. movie. It's just like I had the same <laughs> thought. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. You could almost hear the little gag whistle. Um, yeah, pl- play off there, but I I do feel that Buñuel knows mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's too much in this film that that shows that that I. I think it's an important film because of that. It's it's almost like first of its kind to be able to really push this and have the man talking and you can look back on it and go, holy cow, you just totally just, you know, put, tore him apart yeah. if you're paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the two women uh, really do a pretty remarkable job when they are uh, given those scenes to to push back and to assert themselves and to say, you know, this is this is where I'm at. This is what I can give. Um, and you know, it's not like they are completely frigid. They they will embrace. Mm-hmm. They will kiss. They will show a passionate, you know, uh, side of themselves. It's just <laughs> there's there's that that piece that's still you know that that where they're just not willing to go and that. You know, I, I I would say the ethos of its time. Um, some people are going to mm-hmm. be really offended that, that they would go that far, but not all the way. But I I feel like that's that's a space that needs to be respected and and uh, a boundary that that yeah. should be upheld if that's where the the other person is at. You know that it's not just 
the uh, obligation of the object of desire just to surrender because the the desirer uh, demands it. Well, it's a trope that still plays out mm-hmm. all over the place mm-hmm. today. This is the 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 dream girl, you know, yeah, the, right. That is just a character for the 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 males. Um, Satisfaction. Desire and satisfaction. Yes, right, right, right. I mean, and into some movies that I really like. I, I really like Scott Pilgrim versus the World. But <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, right. you never get to know the objects of his desire in a way that is more than just so that you can understand his frustrations um, as a good guy. You know, mm-hmm. who just doesn't get it <laughs> and is frustrated time and time again. You know, if they, but that, not just that one. I mean, this is again all over the place, and and probably forever will be because. I mean, again, this is not a new story, and it wasn't right. even new when it was first told in the in the that the the source novel, which is I think the late eighteen hundreds or something like right, that. Right, right. Um, never have read it myself. I don't know anything about it other than that it because of this film. You know, <laughs> working backwards is how I've how I found out about it. But it, it'll always be this way. But there, this kind of film that that kind of opens it up a little bit more and says. Mm, you know, your assumptions and your life and your perspective and your entitlement um, is really objectifying. I'm going to call it what it is right here in the title. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, your object of desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and in a way, uh, Matthew is as much a prisoner of his own upbringing um, and, and the social conventions that have been presented to him as just the natural order of things, you know, Men are in charge. Mm-hmm. Men have their desires. Uh, when they press in and and sort of insist, they should be indulged. Well, that's that is kind of the traditional hierarchy. That that's the power structure, the the order of things. Um, that you know, especially men of privilege and prestige, uh, they they need to be satisfied. They need to get what they think they deserve. I mean. There's so much of our uh, our economy, our morality, mm-hmm. um, our legal system, and and uh, religious authorities. All of those things, you know, tend to, to play into that. And and uh, I think Bunuel and his ongoing critique of uh, bourgeois expectations and and um, presumptions is saying, does it really have to be that way? Yes, I know that that's the that's how the majority sees it. That's, that's how things maybe have been in society for a long time, but let's not make the assumption that it's always been that way or that it can only be that way, that there are Mm -hmm. more egalitarian structures and um, mindsets that could be put into practice and might even at some point prevail. I mean, that is so much of what's happening. The so-called culture wars that you know, we've been living through for all of our lives and, uh, you know, kind of continues to go through different. They're not going away. <laughs> well, no, they're not going away because it's, it's, it is, it's part of the human condition. And because mm-hmm. these, these conflicts both have a pretty significant number of adherents who will continue to push in one direction or the other, you know, the traditionalist versus the progressives or the you know the revisionists and and so uh you know this is a 1977 example by a man uh late in life using uh, even older source material like you've said to to tell a story that i think is very resonant and very compelling mm-hmm. uh and very revealing um uh 
even even of you know supposedly progressive guys like myself i mean i've been married uh, to my wife for 37 years now and uh i can i can see moments of my own life sort mm-hmm. of being reflected back at me yes. in, in this story even though i've never resorted to violence or any of that kind of thing uh, but the those senses of 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 ownership, entitlement, of frustration, of perplexity and bewilderment when I'm not getting what I want. I mean, you know, I don't have to get into the nitty gritty personal details of it, but you know, I think I can relate. I think a lot of, a lot of people can and and should be able to relate if they let themselves Mm -hmm. kind of drop the guard enough to say, yeah, you know, he's onto something here. (laughs) And when, especially when you look at it and realize I can, I can relate to this, but I can also relate to the blindness of these characters. I can relate to the fact that some of my, my issues have been because I'm, I'm, I am arrogant. I am in a position of power and authority. Traditionally, I am, um, limited to my own perspective, but that's not yeah. just it. I, I am, I'm a, I'm, I'm the one who traditionally has been able to get their expectations fulfilled. Yeah. And oh, yeah. right. how much of that plays into the sense of frustration that maybe I have felt in the past and how much I just, you know, a movie like this or, or especially, you know, the, the, the pieces that I've read over the last several years have really made me step back and go, Holy cow. I have all these assumptions about myself. Yeah. that are really damaging to some of the people I care the most about um, because I've been unable and unwilling to see um, from a different perspective and mend my ways. And and so, yeah, it's a very uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. kind of film, but I hope people, I hope people, I know this isn't always going to be the case, but I hope people see it and, and heal from it yeah. rather than see it and just uh, side with um, Mateo and right. think, oh yeah, this is ridiculous, and 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 have fun with it. It can be fun, you know. There's some great movies about its funness, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. it's but there's more going on, and it can be very damaging. And and a film again, a film like this can maybe be damaging in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not made by a woman. Um, wasn't written by a woman. It's not directed by a woman. It wasn't produced by a woman. Um you know, that looking at the cast and crew, they're women in the cast, but not really in the crew. I mean, somehow they still got it right, but I'm sure they got it wrong in many ways as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that are still, you know, hopefully we don't, hopefully, hopefully I don't walk away from this thinking I've got it all figured out. Thanks to that man-made movie. <laughs> right. Or, or that Matthew's violence is somehow justified because right. you know, he didn't get what he wanted. Um, you know, there, there is kind of a, a comeuppance. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Conchita yeah. is able to get the bucket dumped on him. There's a, a measure of satisfaction if you want to look at it in those terms. But and then there is also this kind of reconciliation. I mean, I don't know if we're ready to get all the way to the very end of the film. But I think so. I mean, yeah, we're, we've yeah. been going on for a while. So. That's fine. Sure. But so so <laughs> yeah. So so after after Conchita drops the bucket of water on Matu and 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 the there's sort of a, uh, a turnabout is fair play angle there. It appears that they are reconciled because now you see them just walking down the street, doing some window shopping. And then there is this last little bit of what might debatably be called symbolism <laughs> as they're watching <laughs> a, a, an old seamstress again with that needle and thread. Um, there's a, a stain on the cloth, which appears to be blood. Uh, the woman's doing needlepoint. There's been a breach in the fabric. She's sewing it together. And uh, the two characters, uh, 
Mathieu and Conchita are watching her through the glass. So, I mean, it is a kind of a, a, it's so deliberate and so obviously placed right at the end of the film that there has to be some kind of significance to it all. <clears throat> uh, but I think it's, it's one of those nicely ambiguous surrealist types of, of visual tableau where you just watch it and it's really truly up to you to figure out what do you think it means. Uh, mm -hmm. But Wells not going to tell you what it means, and he's going to insist that there is nothing there other than just it was an image that he wanted to portray. He found it compelling, and he just sort of drops it and presents it to us. So then there's one more thing that happens then, after that. But do you want to say anything about? Apart. Yeah. Well, I think that's where probably I'm going. He bro he drops that symbol, and you can almost look mm -hmm. at it as a mending, but then he blows it all up. <laughs> exactly you know right, right. deliberately and yes the terrorism has been a part of this film too throughout just mm -hmm. things happening outside the window or down the car i mean mateo almost gets gets killed a few times just right. because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time well here he was in the wrong place at the at the wrong time for sure you know it has his mm -hmm. number on it and conchita's yeah and so that mending what does it mean in that context again and i don't know i think that that might be one where i'm not even I'm not even sure I want to say that he just went back and said it's all meaningless again, but you know, there's a bit of that fatalism and, and maybe he didn't want to have the pat ending of amend, you know, yes, this, there's a mend here. I actually wonder, I have to look, I wonder how much of that's in the source that that's how it ended with some symbolistic mending. And he just had to come in and, and destroy it. I don't know. I, that's me just talking off the cuff, but it's probably worth looking at. I think um, I read somewhere that the, that the, the sexual relationship is consummated in the source material that the man okay. finally does kind of have his way and so to speak possesses mm -hmm. Conchita. Um, so and I don't is I, more timid and tamed and just with her. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, yeah, I think, the, I think <laughs> the ending is probably pure Benoel and it's fact, right. That, you know, it's an I explosion so of flames. That's the final scene, uh, and it's you know we don't it's see his the, final scene. It is, it is, it's the absolute end point. It's it's kind of like the final punctuation mark of just an explosion, flame and smoke, and then end credits, and that's it. You know, so mm -hmm. we don't even see you know the dead body. We don't see the wreckage. It's just it's just flame. It's just you know an explosion. <laughs> and, and, it's Buñuel's curtain yeah. bow. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's it's as fitting as anything else that he could have yeah. come up with, you know, just the the uh the wildness of it, you know, the the you know, the mm -hmm. kind of confrontational aspect there. So, yeah. Oh, well, I think so we've been going on for a little while, and I'm <laughs> yes. afraid I have to go get my Saturday going, you probably do too. Oh, sure. Well, we can start wrapping things but, up. Yeah. But but this has been fun. I feel like we could keep going, and I'm kind of glad because yeah. you'll come up on these films eventually in your time. Yeah, you know, I am thinking about do again. I do I want to do another episode on Discreet Charm? <laughs> I, I I do probably have some guests lined up for that on my uh, Criterion Reflections podcast. We'll see. I mean, I, I've kind of been thinking. Well, I've already kind of said my piece about it, but you know, it's it's a few <laughs> titles down the line there, so I don't have to make an immediate decision on that. But it might be fun <laughs> to get somebody else to, to give a yeah. take on it. But you yeah, know, this this is definitely a, an important set. It's great to have them back in print again uh, glad that criterion and studio canal could work out mm -hmm. the details there are some unique supplements in this one that uh, are not available on the dvds for those who 
maybe are content with the old DVDs. Um, I really appreciated the interviews with with the two women, uh, mm-hmm. Angela Molina and Carol Bouquet, uh, talking about their experiences. I think that really puts a nice um, wrap around on the obscure object of desire by hearing um, from relatively recent years the women's perspective, especially since they're older and they're later on in life. Mm-hmm. They've each had their careers and recognize how important this film was to get them started. So, yeah, I know I know it's time to to close things down, but I I will just say this is a, a beautiful set and and very welcome return uh, to the Criterion Collection. Yeah, that was exciting. I mean, again, maybe I poo pooed it just a little bit, not deliberately, not <laughs> deliberately when it was announced, but it again, this has been a pretty good year for Criterion. We're gearing up for end of year episodes and thoughts on the year and, and all yeah. of that. But this one, this one is definitely in consideration um, as a best release of the year uh, list. I think, I think so. I mean, I think it's easy to take for granted because they're not quote unquote new titles to Criterion. And, you know, it is interesting. I don't, I don't see Benoit spoken of as, mm-hmm. as much as maybe he used to be. Um, and I think that was part of my thought going into even this, this episode before I started rewatching the films is that, you know, these are kind of the musings of the elderly surrealist. Um, and I'd kind of forgotten just how um, challenging they really are and how they really do represent kind of a, a peak of, of Bunuel's uh, abilities and, and, and skills as a filmmaker rather than kind of a swan song. Mm-hmm. Well, well, thanks so much, David. Um, like yeah. I said, we'll be back here in just a few weeks with yep. a special yep. Christmas episode, which we, we kind of meant to do last year. And then Christmas came and went before either of us, I think even realized <laughs> right, it. Right, right. So we'll, we'll, we'll catch it on it this year. I'm looking forward to that. Um, listeners, thanks for your time. Uh, love to hear your feedback. Um, as part of that Christmas episode, David and I have maybe a little tiny giveaway uh, planned. So, you know, we'll, we'll have more details on that then. But, you know, hope everyone's having a good, uh, a good, well, whatever it's morning, afternoon, <laughs> evening, wherever you're, you're listening to us and whenever you're listening to us. But uh, David, anything final to say? No, it's always been it's always a good time talking with you, Trevor. So I'm really glad that we got this one covered and look forward to getting back to you really soon. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye.